Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Praise God, indeed. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Galatians. Today we're going to continue our journey, going verse by verse. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 21. And this is God's word. His people should hear it and receive it as such. Galatians 4.21 Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai, in Arabia, she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning, we ask you to make yourself known to us. Father, we ask that you would show us who we are, whose we are, and how that could be. Lord, we love you, and we praise you, and we rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ, who has done all that is required for our salvation. To him be praise and glory and honor, and all God's people agree. It is a tradition in lots of cultures throughout history to use stories for communicating purposes. They tell a story in order to make a point. They tell a story in order to teach a moral truth or a pattern of the way the world works. Today, we will see Paul use and, and 
you know, he tells us that that's what he's doing. An allegory. An allegory. An allegory is a story in which specific people, places, or events stand, in other words, represent deep spiritual truth. In other words, Paul's going to tell a story to make a spiritual point. But one of the nifty parts of the story that he's going to tell is it's the story found in Genesis about Abraham and his wife and his two sons born to different mothers. So yes, we can in fact refer to Abraham as having two different baby mamas. It's not something we usually say in the pulpit. But it is incredibly important. In fact, Paul is saying that this history, which deals with lots of difficulty, lots of embarrassment for us perhaps, or even reminding us of areas of deep woundedness. This passage, in some part, deals with infertility. Infertility is something the church should probably talk about more, both from the pulpit and in living rooms. And so I just want to warn you that not everything we are going to dive into is exciting or fanciful. In fact, in many ways... This is probably the hardest passage in Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. And it is a tight argument. Have you ever met somebody who uses a metaphor and then adds a metaphor to the original metaphor? And then another and another and, an, and you get lost at some point in the metaphors? You kind of have to go, uh, clarifying question, can you do that again? (laughs) Right? Sometimes an image is used in multiple ways, and that can be an artistic expression. Great poets can use the same words in different ways, or take an image and then walk it through, and their goal is to help teach or give insight to whatever the subject matter they're discussing. But I want to be clear about two things as we begin. One is that Paul is doing something that you and I are not empowered to do. And that is to attach deep spiritual meaning to things that God has not said are that way. There is a sense in which Paul gets to say, thus says the Lord, therefore, insert spiritual truth. It's very dangerous for us to get super excited about taking biblical imagery and manipulating it or undergirding it or attaching new ideas to it. Every time I hear somebody say, oh, have you read the new book about? 
I always have a similar question. Are they inventing an idea or are they representing it in a new way? Right? Is the message the same? Is the truth the same? And we're talking about an elegant presentation of it or a cool insight to it in its original content? Or is this something they're making up? Taking now and inserting it back into then. As the Apostle Paul is different from us in calling and ability and his purpose. We are to glean from and understand the allegories God has given and explained to us. So, having said that, today might not be the easiest text, the fanciest text, but it should be incredibly comforting and reassuring. It should grow your confidence in the truth of the gospel. See, Paul's going to take us back in to the early chapters of Genesis dealing with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, leading to the birth of two different sons born from the two different mothers, Hagar and Sarah. And Paul's going to explain to us in an incredibly pithy, tight argument why the Judaizers are wrong, why you don't go to Judaism and the obedience of the law as an attempt to find your blessings and favor with God through your own obedience. That's not what it's there for. So watch how Paul begins. He begins in verse 21, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? This phrase, the law, is used in two distinct, though common, senses within this single verse. First, we encounter the phrase, under the law. This denotes the Mosaic covenant. In other words, the ceremonial and sacrificial system that Moses taught about for redemption, taught about for forgiveness, taught about for favor and blessing. Under the law, at the beginning, deals with the Mosaic Covenant. But just a few words later, listen to how he uses the law in response. Here he's referring more broadly to the first five books of the Bible. He's speaking now about the Pentateuch, Torah. See, what he's saying here is, all right, y'all, tell me, those of you who now desire to be under the covenant that God made with Moses for your redemption, do you not listen to the books of Moses, the books that Moses wrote, which contain that Mosaic Covenant. In other words, listen to what Moses wrote about Abraham's two sons, 
being from different mothers. You see the setup? <laughs> you guys want to return to the law as a source of blessing by your own obedience? That didn't last 16 chapters into the Bible. You love the covenant with Moses as a source of identity for Abraham? <laughs> you guys have missed the mark from the beginning. So he's saying, tell me you who desire to be under the law, under the weight and restriction, under the demand of performance, don't you know what Moses wrote? You're cherry picking. Not only are you misunderstanding, you're not putting the ceremonial law in the context of the covenant of grace. Goes on, verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. You could refer to this as the tale of two sons from Genesis 16. Trying to understand the relationship Abraham has with Hagar and Hagar has to her son Ishmael and Ishmael has to the people of God compared to Sarah and Isaac and the people of God. This is where we're going. It's a tale of two sons. So he continues, verse 23, but the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Do you remember the history of where Ishmael came from? I encourage you this week, go back, read it for yourself. And you'll see what Paul is saying here. God made a promise to Abraham. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, you will see this phrase pop up again and again and again and again. The promise. The promise. Not a promise. The promise. The Abrahamic promise, the promise that God made to Abraham, beginning in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And in that promise, you will see that Yahweh promised Abraham that he would be given descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Take a moment and think about how many stars you could see in the sky if there was no light pollution? Have you ever been in the kind of the mountain areas of West Virginia, perhaps, away from the cities where the light pollution is dim? It's like there's thousands upon thousands more, infinitely more. And that still has some haze and light fog. Imagine living in a world where a candle was the brightest light you had. Little oil wick. 
and then blowing it out and staring at the sky. I wonder if there were nights where it was more white than black to gaze upon the sky. I don't relate as well to that image, and so I'm grateful that the Lord gives an additional image. He doesn't just say, you're going to have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. He also says, it might be easier to relate to the imagery that Yahweh used of sand on a beach. Where's your favorite beach? I remember the first time I got to preach at a wedding that was outside on a beach And I was asked to preach on the text that deals with how high and wide, right? How long, how deep is the love of God in Christ? And it took fresh and powerful meaning that morning. Because we were sitting in a place, standing in a place where you could not see the end of the beach in either direction. And he couldn't see the end of the water in that direction. And I can imagine how deep the waters of the ocean are. And I could remember that if we keep going that way, it's a long time till we hit Africa or Europe. How high, how deep, how far, how long our sight lines are pitiful representations of the greater spiritual truth about the love of God. That's how many sons Abraham was supposed to have. How many children. But his wife was old. He was older. In fact, one of the most important things we learn about the nature of their relationship is that Sarah was barren and they were childless. Well past healthy childbearing years. How far past menopause had Sarah gone? But God Almighty had promised. He said, I'm going to do this thing. And so, I imagine that early on, after hearing that promise from Almighty God, spoken clearly, understood rightly, there were mornings where Abraham woke up, rolled over, and looked at his wife. Did it happen? How do you feel? You think there might, no, okay, all right, sorry, all right. The Lord is good, we trust him. After how many weeks, how many months, how many seasons of a year, how many years upon years, are you, no, How can that be, right? What was promised and what was experienced seemed to be in grave conflict, irreconcilable 
conflict. But they were called to trust God. Just as you and I are. This is one of the biggest things you could ever trust God with. Every couple battling infertility. Tries to remember general truths. Without receiving them as specific spoken promises to them. They want to trust God. They want to love God. But it hurts. There might be mornings or moments where you feel like you have failed somehow. As if you were in control of the autonomic processes of your body. I don't mean to belabor this point, but I don't think we understand Hagar if we don't understand confusion and anxiety and anger and bitterness and fear all in a daily cocktail, all ready for swallowing, ready for surrendering. Most, most free moments. This is where their heart lands. Infertility is brutal. In part because you want something very good. And it is something that is very good that sometimes feels very easy for others. And impossible for you. It can pit one spouse against another. Whose fault is it? Where's the disconnect? We can get really sciencey really fast. The Lord is clear that He alone opens and closes the womb. And He's to be trusted even when we are confused. Plenty of areas in life to be confused about, plenty of areas of life to trust God in. But because it deals with life and the absence of life and it deals with intimacy and sex, it can become arresting. It is important for us to consider these things in order to understand the context of what decision Abraham, at the urging of his wife, does. It's important that we remember that in their day, this was a legal right. That in their day, Hagar's will was not considered. It's somehow helpful that Abraham and Sarah are in it together. This is not an infidelity that she had no knowledge of and must forgive later perhaps. This was the plan. But the plan was born according to the flesh. This is what Paul tells us in verse 23. The allegory holds because how Ishmael is born is tied to why the Judaizers are wrong. Inseparably linked. Ishmael was born by natural 
thinking, by human wisdom. The son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh. And the contrast to that in verse 23 is that the son of the free woman is born through promise. God promised the impossible. He didn't promise the unlikely or rare. He promised what if anyone else had said it would be hopeless wishing. I really wish you felt better. Yeah, but you don't have any power over that. Nah, just keep at it. It could happen. That is not God Almighty, creator of all things, saying, I will put pregnancy in your womb. You will be fertile. You will carry a child, and that child will not only be born, but they will live long enough to have other children who will have children who will have children like grains of sand on the seashore. You would think if God promised you stars and sand as the imagery of your fertility, that it wouldn't take decade. Right? But God does all things according to his perfect timing. That is easy to say. It's important to remember. It's essential to believe. To live in a world where God is sovereign is the only world we could live in. So though many barren years had passed from the time of God's promise of a son to Abraham and Sarah, they still remained childless. So they, this is Abraham and Sarah, they took matters into their own sinful hands. This is the allegory. They took matters into their own sinful hands, which, by the way, never works out the way we envision. We can chuckle, but we better be chuckling at our histories. Here's a theological way to describe how Ishmael came to be born. Abraham and Sarah tried to lay hold of God's covenant promise through their own sinful efforts. That's the problem of the Judaizers. It's the problem with legalism. It's the problem of not believing the true gospel. Because the gospel is not about what you do for God. The one true gospel is about what God in Christ has done for us. What he has given us. Last thing you want from God is a paycheck. His gift is way better. They tried to lay hold of God's covenant promise by their own sinful efforts. See, Sarah urged a willing Abraham to have sexual intercourse with her handmaiden. You see this in Genesis 16, verses 3 and 4. 
And this is why, this is the basis for Paul characterizing Ishmael's birth as according to the flesh. Sarah and Abraham tried to lay hold of this covenant promise through their sinful effort. Well, if God's not doing it through Sarah, we must find a new way. Don't do it. Stop doing it. It won't work. It never works. Galatians 5.19. Paul will, next chapter, lead a list of the works of the flesh. It's not a complete list, but he's going to target specifically important things as he unfolds this list in verse 19. Here's what he says. Now the works of the flesh are evident. It means they're easy to see. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. And then he goes on. Verse 20 and following. We can see here what Paul means when he talks about born according to the flesh. Born according to human practice and thinking. So this contrast between Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and Isaac is embodied in these two different forms of expression. The son of the slave woman whose name is Hagar giving birth to Ishmael. He's born according to the flesh. The son of the free woman, Sarah, is Isaac. And he was born through the promise. All right, we can see the groundwork. So despite decades of infertility and Sarah being well past her childbearing age, Paul even says that in the letter to the Romans. Romans 4.19. God enabled them to receive their son Isaac, who was born by God's grace. They couldn't earn it. They couldn't produce it. They couldn't make it happen. They tried for days and weeks and months and years, a decade. And then God, poof. I'm going to take Abraham, and I'm going to take Sarah, and I'm going to allow her egg to be fertilized in their time with one another. So Ishmael is born through sinful human effort, and Isaac was born through God's grace in fulfillment of God's covenant promise. Do you hear the words of salvation? Do you see the argument, the intellectual argument about justification being grounded in what happens in Genesis? In the first generation of God's people, Abraham. So when he says here in 24 that this is to be interpreted allegorically, he's saying these women represent two distinct covenants, two different covenants. One is the larger of the two, the covenant of grace. 
It's the covenant of grace that contains within it the purpose of the ceremonial laws, the sacrificial system of Moses. This is not a Paul invention. This is not a David invention. The prophets didn't imagine this. This was true from the beginning. From the beginning, God's people were to be defined not by their sinful effort, but on the basis and grounding of his grace. J.I. Packer defines grace as mercy contrary to merit. Sometimes when we say that grace is unmerited favor, we're not wrong, but there's more to it. It's like having a big scoop of ice cream in a bowl. You want hot fudge, right? You want the toppings and the, the rest of it. A bowl of ice cream is great, but it should fit in a larger context of a build-your-own-sundae, says the fat guy. Ceremonial system, we've been studying the law of God. We've been studying this throughout our time in Galatians over and over and over again. So when Paul says it's allegorical, I'm sure he has the attention of both the Jews who find their identity as being children of Abraham, children of Moses. They like Moses a lot. They don't really give Ishmael much thought. And Paul has one of the best Sucker punches I've ever seen in a text. This is a haymaker. Paul's been jabbing for three chapters. Taking down the argument that the Judaizers have. And he is going to come with one of the greatest right crosses ever delivered in print. So, here's the allegorical interpretation. These women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai... And every Jew goes, me, me, that's me, Sinai, that's me. That's my boy Moses, spending weeks with God. I'm not sure I want to attach myself to those crazy people who didn't want God to talk to them anymore. But like Moses, Sinai, that's like post-deliverance. That's we're out of Egypt. That's my guy. That's the team I play for. Let's roll. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery? From Mount Sinai? Hagar? Wait, Hagar is not Sinai, right? The children of Abraham are the ones that are Moses and like the promised land and all that stuff. Here Paul has one of the best gotchas you could ever imagine. Who do the Jews hate more than the Arabs? If they're not in Christ, God. They hate God. As a people, who do they hate? Not them. If you're not them, they despise you. 
Right? Samaritans are dogs. <laughs> you think they love the Babylonians? The Assyrians? Philistines? Who are they going to love? They love Moses. They attach their identity to Moses. And this problem has persisted for so long that the Judaizers, after Christ has come, after his death and resurrection, after it's all been revealed in the power of the Spirit for the building up of the nations. Remember, the original promise to Abraham was for the benefit of the whole thing. All the nations. And there they are in the first century obsessing over their elite status. And Paul has just ripped that entire carpet out from under them. I mean, he knocks them down. Because what he's saying is that actually, if you love the law based on your own performance, you don't have it through Sarah and Isaac. You're stuck with Ishmael and Hagar because you're enslaved by your own performance. And we know this to some degree, don't we? Can we be honest with one another? That there are days you feel like God can't possibly smile at you. He looks at what you've done, what you've thought, what you've wanted. And it's an unfavorable day. Or you do something awesome. And you're like, yeah, I deserve. Thanks, God. So it either ends in ego and pride or despair. God doesn't want us to live in our egos. Because if you're, you know, prideful, what follows? <laughs> and why? Why is that? Oh, because of the fall. We fall. And what happens when we're in despair? It's the same thing. You're falling off the balance beam on the other side. But you're still falling according to the fall. Hagar is Mount Sinai. And he even says it in Arabia. I want to be very clear and take a pastoral time out for a second. What is happening on the other side of the world in Israel right now is awful. It's awful. I can't imagine what it's like to be any people group surrounded by those who will only be satisfied by your extinction. I'm not going to make the political commentary beyond saying any nation under the threat of extermination deserves worldwide attention and deep, even costly perhaps, compassion. There is evil in the world and it should be blotted out. But life should be defended. Protected. So it's important for us to understand that when we're talking about Israel right here, we're not talking about the government that's acting halfway around the world. 
that Israel is based in historic identities, not covenant promises. If you're wondering how that could be, I invite you to begin in, Ro in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Or call me. Let's talk. I like coffee. No, I don't. I like creamer, which comes in coffee. <laughs> I like water. Put some ice in it. So when we read here that we're talking about Arabs in Arabia, and we're talking about Mount Sinai, and we're talking about Moses and Jews, let us not read a modern American understanding of geopolitics into this text. That's eisegesis, not exegesis. So Hagar is Sinai from Arabia, and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem. What? Could you imagine being a Judaizer, thinking that your salvation is tied to your own performance and the performances that take place where? In Jerusalem. What's in Jerusalem that's kind of the most important thing about the city? The temple. Whose temple? Yeah, Yahweh's temple. Yeah. They have their identity in Moses and in the temple in Jerusalem and the sacrifices and the systems and all they're in love with is the shadow. The substance has come. That temple will soon be destroyed, never to be rebuilt. Because the sacrifices that take place there had no power beyond teaching God's people that sin has a cost. That he will one day bear. And he does. So as we think this through, the Judaizers would be enraged, gaping open mouth, fury. But they cannot escape the allegory that is so clearly present here. In other words, they are Arabian sons, not Sons of the Abrahamic covenant. They claim Abraham. They claim Moses. But they operate. They live like the idolatrous outsiders. The pagan views. In fact, all religions but Christ. All religions are about what you do or don't do. Except ours. Ours is about what Christ has done. And the law is the way we recognize what he accomplished for us. So Paul connects the Judaizers to earthly Jerusalem to Hagar. And says that they're trying to lay hold of God's covenant promises through their own sinful efforts. Instead of receiving the blessings and favor of God by faith. They want to enslave themselves again to the law of Moses. This is like a criminal who gets out of jail after a 10-year bid and is on the street for five minutes, realizes this is not what he wants, runs to the nearest grocery store, holds up a cashier, and waits for the cops to come so that they can take him back to jail? 
Jail's the scariest thing I know on earth, probably. Because you have no control, no power. I mean, yes, you get fed. Wait, which jail? Whose system? Where are we in the world? Those who seek the blessings and favor of God by faith in Christ receive the blessings and favor of God through his faithfulness in his promise. So Paul is now going to not only knock them off their feet, but he's going to grab a song from Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 54. Listen to what Paul grabs. He says, sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. You didn't labor, but here's your son. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children who, of her who is married, says Yahweh. Paul's breaking out into song, dealing with barrenness in Israel. See, in the original context that Israel was going through, they were in exile. Why were they in exile at the time that Isaiah is writing? Because of Israel's disobedience to the Mosaic Covenant. Why do you want to return to the very thing we got exiled for? Israel, through her attempt to render obedience to Yahweh, has merited only exile and curses. But in spite of Israel's disobedience, God, who is rich in grace and mercy, nevertheless redeems his people and fulfills his covenant promise, rescuing them and bringing them back from exile. The sons they did not labor for will be given. In fact, they will be more. Can you feel the joy of Paul as he sings about the end of exile? About the birth, not of an earthly Jerusalem based on our human performance, but a heavenly one. See, the true children of the promise are those who by grace through faith look to Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, they will far outnumber those who seek their redemption and justification through the law. Paul then gives us an insight into Genesis 21, 8 through 9. He writes, and the child grew and was weaned. Talking about Isaac. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. In other words, the day he's going to start eating solid food and he's no longer on the breasts of his mother, it's party time. And Sarah observed something happening at Isaac's, let's call it a birthday party, celebration for Isaac. Sarah saw that the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, was laughing at Isaac. Now that sounds good, right? Who here doesn't like to laugh? Everybody point at Dale. Just kidding. Dale's one of the best laughers I know. Thanks for sitting in the front row. Don't excommunicate me, please. That's an inside joke from a long time ago. 
supposed to be a celebration of the life of Isaac. A graduation of, of kinds. They're not laughing in jest or fun like we just did. It's mocking. It's toying with Isaac. This is the older brother. It's like probably 14 years between them perhaps. He's making sport of his little brother. And the mother sees the son of promise getting persecuted by the older brother and says, they got to go. I can't imagine how this blended family situation actually functioned. But I know that a mother will defend her child. And I know that God rendered judgment here. Listen to Paul as he explains. Just as that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Paul's saying that the events of Genesis 21, 8 through 9, the mocking and toying with Isaac is a form of persecution. Now that word can get overused. It can get underused. But you know who uses it perfectly every time? God does. God the Spirit. Amen. And so we see the relationship between the persecution experienced in verses 8 and 9 in the proclamation and judgment that comes in Galatians 4.30, which is a quote from or reference to Genesis 21 Verse 10, in other words, after Sarah saw the mocking, she says to Abraham this. Cast out this slave woman and her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And what happens to Hagar and Ishmael? is the same that happens to all who seek redemption through their own sinful efforts. They will never partake in the covenant blessings, which are reserved for the children of promise. This is the argument that Paul is making. So children born not by sinful human effort, but by the curse, excuse me, by the grace of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. These are the children who are given salvation and justification because they come on the basis of God's grace alone. In other words, we're going to have a handout for you so you can take it home. And it's going to have on one side the life of one who is committed to works for their salvation. It's under the heading doing. The other one is under the heading believing. Because these are the two contrary ways to live that Paul is outlining in the whole dang letter. Because there's no such thing as performance-based Christianity. The only way to gain God's favor, receive his blessings, is to trust in Jesus Christ. And what do we trust we trust in Jesus' obedient life. 
where he earns the covenant blessings that we are so lavishly receiving. And in his atoning death, he suffered the curses that our failure to obey the law deserves. So we trust in the obedient life of Jesus. We trust in the atoning death that he died in my place and that God's wrath is satisfied with what Christ has suffered and he died in my place. That is not the end of the story. We not only have the obedient life of Christ in all its righteousness and the atoning death in all its efficacy, we have a tangible, visible, and hopeful image given to us in the vindication of Christ in the resurrection on that Sunday morning. That is the only way to be in right standing with God. What does the scripture say? The scripture says, cast out the woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Here's his urge, verse 31. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This present Jerusalem is going to pass away. With all the attempts for righteousness, they misunderstand as being offered. But the heavenly Jerusalem, that's where your citizenship is found. We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. In other words, here's your application. Don't return to bondage. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you this day that the blood of Christ covers and washes We thank you, Jesus, that you have lived as we could not. That all day, every day, for so many years, you remained perfect, stainless, sinless. And you did so for us because we could not. And in your overwhelming humility and mercy, you suffered the agony of the cross and the bearing and burden of your Father's wrath. You did that for us. Lord, thank you that as we think about the horrors and gruesomeness of the cross, that we remember that is your righteous assessment of our sinfulness. We are not, despite common belief, pretty good. We are wretched sinners whose only hope is found in the good news that that promised son of the free woman would come and release us from bondage within and without that we might love you, receive you, and live in the freedom and grace that you have provided, the blessing that you richly pour out upon us, Lord, we yield. We yield our attempts at self-righteous living. We yield and ask for the enabling power of your spirit to guide us and guard us in such a way that we would forsake 
all attempts to gain your favor from what we do and that we would receive and delight in the truth that you have done all and all that you have you give to us and we are grateful and all God's people agree.